Dr. Peter Daniels came from a poor, dysfunctional family. As a child, he suffered from illness, dyslexia, and he never passed one grade in school. But from this humble beginning, he developed a deep faith in God, and he confounded the skeptics. He's happily married to his wife, Robina, who is here tonight with him, a marriage of 59 years. And Robina, would you stand, please? Can we welcome Robina Daniels? They have a family that is a family of friendship, support, very close-knit, three children, eight grandchildren. Now, the business community says about Dr. Daniels, he could motivate an Egyptian mummy to walk. And others call him an international business statesman. And you'll see a little more of that as he comes to share with us tonight. He's received many honors from universities, theological colleges, governments, business and humanitarian humanitarian organizations globally. He's spoken to over one million people. Thousands have flocked to hear him speak. He travels the globe. And his books, I've watched this happen, his books sell at a frantic pace. And one specific recording he did on encouragement sold over a million copies. He's a genius for creating simple business formulas and solving difficult problems. You're going to be inspired tonight. And as I mentioned to you, I wanted to bring Dr. Daniels back to speak to us and to share with us, amidst all that God puts on his heart, to touch on two things. Number one, the seriousness of the state of the economy of the world, and particularly the United States. And he'll touch a little bit on that, I believe, tonight. But tomorrow night, he'll get into it even more so. And then, secondly, after the economy, what is it that each of us are called to do in our lives with our purpose? Because I believe that many believers, the Lord is calling to be in business. It may not be your primary function or career could be something on the side but for others it could be the primary thing you're doing it may be more than one business i believe that god by the power of the holy spirit gives christians the ability to do what others cannot and we have the advantage and this is what you're going to hear from peter daniels tonight that he took the advantage he seized the the god-given advantage that we've been given and believed that he would be effective and successful at what god called him to do And so I pray that you're inspired tonight, and no matter what your purpose is, may the Lord speak to you and put faith in your heart that you can do better than what you're doing right now by His grace and by His power. So without saying any more, with an open heart to receive, would you help me welcome our special guest tonight, Dr. Peter Daniels. Thank you, Pastor. I'm delighted to be with you this evening. I should add something to what the pastor has shared with you. Uh, I did come from a dysfunctional background. I had four fathers and two mothers, and most of my relatives had 
free board and lodging with King George VI, that meant they were in jail. I was very ill as a child. I had uh, diphtheria. Later on, I was paralyzed with meningitis. I went to school as a normal child went to school, but uh, there was something missing. They thought I had brain damage, and they were putting me into a, a, a class of brain-damaged children until along came a teacher called Miss Phillips. She said, he's not brain-damaged, she's just plain stupid. <laughs> and... Uh, for three years she punched me, she kicked me, she slapped me, she didn't get anything into me or out of me and she used to get me by the chin and wrap my teeth and say, Peter Daniels, you're a bad, bad boy and you'll never amount to anything. That became a self-fulfilling prophecy. At 26 years of age, I was an illiterate bricklayer and stonemason. But on May the 25th, 1959, I went along to a Billy Graham crusade in Australia where I live. And when I heard the gospel in clear terms for the first time, I suddenly realized that I was equal with all men before God. And I reasoned that if I was equal with all men before God, I no need to accept inequality with anyone. I was the son of a king. And I wish you could know the difference that that makes. God birthed in my heart a dream. We were so broke we had to reach up to touch bottom. We third generation welfare. But God had put in my heart to see how much money one human being could actually give away in their lifetime. About a week after we came to Christ, there was a knock on the front door. I went to the door, there was a distinguished gentleman there. And he said, my name is Dr. Harold Stewart. I'm a returned medical missionary from Indonesia. I'm a Bible teacher. We've just heard that you and your wife have come to Christ. Would you allow me to teach you Bible? For the next 15 years, for two and a half hours, every Saturday morning on my knees, he taught me Bible and faith and prayer. And he showed me that the Bible is the only literature known to mankind that provides a futuristic view of history. Because with Jesus to the economist, he could get money from a fish's mouth. To the botanist, he is a rose of Sharon. To the futurologist, he has an everlasting plan. To the paleontologist, he was there before prehistoric life. To the astrophysicist, he controls the stars. To the physician, he heals the sick with a touch. With the architect, he is a temple of God. To the philanthropist, he fed the 5,000. To the builder, he is a cornerstone. To the teacher, he is a living word. To the astronaut, he ascended into the heavens unaided. To the engineer, he can stop the waves. To the leader, he led by serving. To the general, he commands an army of archangels. To the philosopher, he is the way, the truth, and the life. To the politician, the government is on his shoulders. To the musician, the heaven sang at his birth. To the evangelist, he has preached for 2,000 years. To the judge, he gave Solomon's wisdom. To the anthropologist, he is the creator of all mankind. To the meteorologist, he stopped the sun. To the caterer, he turned the water into wine. This is the Jesus that we serve. This is the Jesus that we serve. And you have no idea what it's like when you cannot articulate words and when you cannot add up just simple arithmetic where you cannot read, you cannot write, and what it's like to come to Christ and God puts a dream in your heart so big you can hardly comprehend it. I went and purchased three dictionaries. I put one next to my bed, one in the bathroom, that's a good place to read, 
And one of my excuses for a motor car, now I need to tell you about this motor car, it was a 1937 4V8 Clubman sedan that had been rolled three times. The glass was gone, we kept the doors on with wire. It was an eight-cylinder, but only went on six, so I got my aerobics while it was just uh, standing there. And it wasn't the cost of the gasoline, it was how much oil this confounded thing used. I could get 14 miles to the gallon of oil. <laughs> and if uh, anyone showed any disrespect for my motor car, I'd bridge it across the evening traffic, and I'd sit there and uh, bump away, and people would hit their horns and yell at me and swear at me and when enough people got behind I put my foot on the clutch I slapped it on the accelerator I would baptise them in oil <laughs> but I went through those decrees frontwards and then backwards I then read 2,000 biographies I haven't got polygrip by the way I do have a plate in my mouth because I have uh, Parkinson's disease so if my medication breaks down I'll break dance as if I'm on steroids but there we were I went through frontwards and then backwards and then I studied law, accountancy, philosophy, theology modern ancient history, politics and economics I found the mind was like a muscle and it could be developed and then I went into business lost everything I want to tell you that will clear your sinuses I paid it back and went into business a second time lost it again you learn nothing new from the second kick from a horse. I paid it back. I was going into business the third time. My wife said, just get a job. For goodness sake, this is not working. You're spending all this money on books and tapes, and I don't see anything happening. Peter Jr. needs some shoes for school. Graham needs a sweater. Winter's coming, and I'm pregnant again, and you've spent all this money on books. On our 33rd wedding anniversary, I bought her a beautiful necklace, a 49 carat opal with 33 diamonds on. This thing's so big, when she walks, she's got to walk like this. <laughs> I said, you haven't complained about the, uh, uh, the books I bought lately. <laughs> well, I went into business a third time and lost it again. Paid it back. What do you do when your dreams start to fade? You reach for one more dream. We should never give up, let up, or shut up until God takes us up. I think to be a Christian ought to mean something. And in that meaning, there ought to be some sort of evidence to stand for the challenge it presents rather than hide behind the comfort it offers. And we've travelled all the way from Australia, the longest air flight in the world, to ask you a very simple question. It's a question that Joseph Father asked his son when he said, My son, what is this dream that you have? What is this dream that you have? For many of you, it was alive and well when you were a little younger. You'd go for a swim at the beach and lay on the warm sand. You'd stand in front of a wood fire on a cold winter's night or under the starry heavens of a hot summer night and you would do what men and women and all ages have done. You would contrast that picture of what you are against what you would like to become. Over the next 48 hours, we want to turn back on that dream machine. You see, dreaming is not a waste of time. When you dream, you're on the periphery of God-likeness because you're, you're creating something out of nothing. And let me tell you that America is in bad shape at the moment. You know it. You can feel it in your bones. You owe $90 trillion. Have you any idea what that amount represents? We are economists. We did two films in uh, 1998 called Millennium Money. And we showed through this film 
that America would go into deep recession in 2008. We were one week out, one month out. Now something's got to happen. Christians are the only ones that can resurrect it. If you started paying it back at a dollar a second, just if it was only five trillion, and you started paying it back a dollar a second, you started 150 years ago, you have to go 159,000 years to pay your bills. There's not enough money in the entire universe to meet your debit. And people are laughing at America. People are, are saying they're not going to make it. Where are those people that you have sent gifts to? Where are those people that you have blessed? Where are those people that you stopped them from dying of hunger? Why don't they come now and talk to America and say, thank you. Can we help? I'm pro-American. I'm Australian, but I remember when your grandfathers gave their life for our country. The Japanese were coming in through New Guinea and northern Australia, and then the Yanks came. And I was a little boy sitting on a curb and I watched our soldiers go past and it only took a few moments. Then the Americans came and it took two hours for the convoy to go past. You saved our country in the 40s and I wish you could know how much we love you for that. But, but... Over the next 48 hours, I want to share some concepts with you. I haven't said anything much about our businesses, but uh, when I was 29, God gave me another dream to change the world for 300 years. Oh, I'm sure you think that's a crazy comment to make. How can one person change the world in their lifetime? Well, Abraham changed the world in his lifetime. Moses changed the world in his lifetime. Gideon changed the world in his lifetime. David changed the world in his lifetime. In more modern times, Mahatma Gandhi was what he called Satyagraha, which was soul force. He broke the chain of colonial power. He changed the world in his lifetime. Henry Ford changed the world in his lifetime when he set the world moving via the automobile. And Roger Bannister changed the world in his lifetime when he ran the first four-minute mile and he proved that the efforts of human endeavor are yet to come. My hero, Sir Winston Leonard Spencer Churchill, the last great English bulldog. This man that mobilized English language and sent it into battle during the Battle of Britain when he sent those young men up in those Spitfire planes that caused him to say, never before on the field of human conflict as so many owed so much to so few. So let us brace ourselves for our duties and so bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its Commonwealth would last a thousand years, men would still say this. This was their finest hour. They changed the world in their lifetime. Bach and Beethoven changed the world in their lifetime as they expanded our consciousness in the area of symphony and song. And Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., he changed the world when they're on Capitol Hill before the television audience of the world. He gave that famous speech that I, I have a dream. He said, I have a dream that my four little children will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of the character. I have a dream today. And we've traveled all this way to try and turn back on your dream machine. Now, something is going to happen over this 48 hours. We've been to nearly 1,200 churches in 28 countries and created more millionaires in the Christian church than anyone in history. And there are going to be some people here that are going to change. We're going to give you concepts that you've never heard of and never touched before. We're going to talk about the American economy. We're going to talk about maybe how it can be fixed. 
but we can't do anything unless Christians get off their blessed assurance and start to do something. I'm tired of Christians being broke. It's time for us to take back the economics and own corporations instead of being employment fodder, suffocating in the amorphous club of sameness. And it's up to... Look, I, I hear people say, well, no one will help me. I'll grow up, help yourself. I mean, what's happening to us? Well, God has closed the door. Kick it down. There's nothing capricious in God's nature. He will not give you a dream without giving you the ability to fulfill that dream. Well, I'm waiting on God. He's in front. He's still waiting for us. I mean, what's happening to us? And let me get away from this pulpit for a minute and talk to the ladies. Ladies, get off your husband's back. I mean, you're yakety, yakety, yakking at him, you're beating him up, you're beating up his ego. I know he's grubby, I know he does grubby things, I know he says grubby things, but you have to remember God made him from the dirt. <laughs> but ladies, you have no idea the power and the authority that you have. We need you more than you need us. You just put your hand on your husband's shoulder, you give it a squeeze and you tell him that he can do anything and I want to tell you he'll turn into a raging lion. Now I wake my, look, I wake up my wife every morning of her life with cafe latte, marmalade and toast. It's called self-preservation. <laughs> She's not responsible for anything she says in the morning until she has her coffee. We've got to stop this bickering and divorce. We've got to get our act together because the people out there don't think that we have anything much more to offer. But let me tell you, if the Christians get their act together, we can take back the economics. We can take back the economics. I shared with the pastor last time I was here that about 20 years ago, I financed some of the greatest theologians in the world with one question. What was the value of the gold on frankincense and myrrh that was given to Jesus at his birth in today's currency? Have you ever thought about that? Well, we researched it for two years. We had them come down through Persia and they discovered some tablets. They found that the escort that took the Magis along was an escort of 10,000 cracked bowmen on horseback. They arrived at the city of Herod. And you read in your Bible that the people were disturbed because Herod's army was away fighting a war and they could have taken the city. They arrived at where Jesus was when he was between 24 and 26 months old with the Shekinah glory shining down. Have you any idea the value of the gold and frankincense and myrrh? Because you know for nearly 100 years we've loved that poverty mentality, haven't we? Because if, if you follow that poverty mentality that Jesus was poor, then uh, you don't have to perform. And if you don't perform, you don't earn. If you don't earn, you don't get. And if you don't get, you cannot give. And the devil's won again. Any idea the value? Try 400 million American dollars. I want that to soak in. You see, I'm tired of Christians being broke. Well, we love that poverty mentality, but Jesus was beyond wealth. He could turn the water into wine. It wasn't even his water. <laughs> he could multiply the loaves and fish at 20,000%. He was beyond wealth. He didn't have to go to medical school. He just had to touch someone and they were healed. Why don't we get him out of that box and realize the magnitude and the greatness of God 
and then aspire to do something. If Adolf Hitler can think of a thousand-year Reich, why can't a Bible-believing Christian think of something that will last a hundred years after they've gone? And we're going to spend some time in this next 48 hours. Now, I can't help you if you don't come. I know some of you are thinking, well, I don't have the ability. Well, I was colorblind and still colorblind, and I sold more paint in Australia than anyone else. I mean, I was married to wife, my wife for 20 years before I found out she wasn't black. <laughs> but I, I, want, I want to talk about something a little different tonight. I gave the pastor a little nudge and I said, would you mind if I did something different? He said, you do what you like. And I want to talk about Caleb tonight. I warned my daughter when she was having that fourth child. I said, don't you realize every fourth child born in the world is Chinese? (laughs) But when Caleb was born, I went out and got a a mountaineer's hat. And I wanted Caleb to be a mountain climber. And this has a deep relevance to my own life because at 40 years of age, I was struck down with leukemia. And I was falling asleep continually. I just couldn't keep going. And one day as I fell asleep, my Bible fell out and I read these words, Thou hast kept me these 40 years. And I was 40 years of age. I ran out to my wife and uh, I said, Surely God has spoken to me through his word. Everything will be fine. I'll get well. And when I get well, I'll have a medal struck with Caleb stripped to the waist, standing before the mountain. God, give me this mountain. I'll do it in gold and silver and bronze and I'll make it available with finance to people who have had achievement around the world. Nelson Mandela has one and many famous people around the world. But I want to share a concept tonight about an Australian that received this medal. We are a different kind of people. We come from convict stock. Don't try and boss us around. Don't mess with us. We win more medals at the Olympics per head of population than any other nation on the face of the earth. As a matter of fact, when the GIs were in Australia in World War II, I was shining the shoes of a great big black man and he had his face cut and you could see his teeth were loose and I said, Mister, are you in trouble? He said, son, in the United States of America we have one boxing champion in the world, Joe Louis. He got one on every street corner. <laughs> And I want to share about an Australian that received this. I said we're a little different. We were the first people in the United Nations to grant Israel a homeland. We're a little bit different in war. In World War I, the Ottoman Turks ruled the Holy Land. They were faced with 40,000 crack troops trying to get through. They were British troops, but they were faced with one mile of machine guns. They were slaughtered. And the Australian general said, let my boys at them. They said, well, you've only got 800 horsemen. He said, but you don't understand Australians when they get mad. And so they came towards the machine guns, one mile of machine guns, in two columns. They trotted their horses towards them. The Ottoman Turks thought, well, we'll just slaughter them. But they just kept coming and they thought, these guys are crazy. They're wearing feathers in their caps and they're just quietly trotting along straight in the machine gun. When you get to a particular point in that sort of warfare, you get off the horse and you crawl on your belly to reach the enemy and you try to shoot them. But when they got to that point, 
They dropped their reins, they spurred their horses, they took out their bayonets and they started to scream and they bolted towards the enemy. The enemy started to get terrified and they wondered what was going to happen with all these horses coming to them and they thought, any moment we'll have to shoot. So finally they said fire, but they forgot to adjust the sights and the bullets went over the top and we released the Holy Land the first time for 400 years. We're a different kind of people. Don't mess with us. Don't mess with us. And I want to talk about a different kind of people. This man called Caleb, and when I read the scripture, and I want to read it to you, I want to put it in the context in which it was said many years ago. And this is Caleb. I was 40 years old. When Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Caspania to spy out the land, and I brought word back to him as it was in my heart. But nevertheless, the brethren who went up with me made the heart of the people melt, but I wholly followed the Lord my God. So Moses swore, he swore on that day, saying, Surely the land where your foot is trodden shall be your inheritance and your children forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. Then now behold, the Lord has kept me alive, as he said, these 45 years, ever since the Lord spoke this word to Moses, while Israel wandered in the wilderness. And now... Here I am this day, 85 years old, and yet I'm as strong this day as at the day that Moses sent me, just as my strength was then, so now is my strength for war, both for going out and for coming in. Now therefore give me, give me this mountain. Give me this mountain. Now I said I wanted to relate it to something that happened in Australia. I think the Boston Marathon is about 40 miles. We had a marathon in Australia 500 miles long, from Sydney to Melbourne on the bitumen. Was it possible that one human being could run 500 miles non-stop? If they could, there'd be athletic immortality. The word went out around the world. People came in, Olympic runners from all over the world. I saw them on television coming in from the aeroplanes. I said to my wife, surely these men and women have got muscles in their gums. I couldn't believe the athletes that were coming in. I watched it as it started the race. When they were ready to fire the gun, the camera went across and they saw these magnificent creatures stretching and taking their last vitamin rate 500 miles. Was it possible that one human being could run 500 miles non-stop? And then the camera focused on the craggly old guy. He was swaying from side to side. They went up to him and they said, Sir, are you running today? He said, Yes. They said, Would you speak up? He said, Well, I've damaged my voice box as a child. Uh, how old are you? I'm 61. He looked 90. He's tussled hair. He had a hole in his athletic singlet, he had some baggy tracksuit pants on and a pair of old Reeboks and he was just swaying away. They said, how do you think you could go? He said, I'll win. I fell off the chair. I couldn't believe the audacity of it. But the worst was yet to come. They said, do you have a trainer? He said, yes. He's around the back in the panel van. We went, they went around with the television cameras for comic relief and they found an 84-year-old man smoking a pipe in a rocking chair. They said, are you Cliff Young's trainer? He said, yep. They said, how do you think it will go? He said, well, he's a good lad, you'll win. Well, I couldn't believe this. 
I mean, here was this craggly old guy just standing there swaying from side to side, these great athletes stretching and getting ready to move off. The gun went off and they started to spring out and they ran and they were like greased lightning as they went along. They had motorcycles alongside interviewing them, how many races they've won and where they came from. And finally they said, how about the old guy? How do you feel about that? They said, well, he'll run a few blocks and, uh, and he'll just enjoy himself. But they just kept running on. The second day, they caught up with the athletes. They said, what's happened? The old guy's in front. They said, well, he doesn't understand Olympic running and distance running. Tomorrow we'll pass him if he's standing still. But the next day, he was 20 miles in front. And they took many of the Olympic athletes to hospital in traction. And he, he ran through the rain. He ran night and day. He ate on the run. He drank on the run. He toileted on the run. Don't ask me how he did that. <laughs> but he became the greatest athlete in the history of the world. Just over five days, he covered 500 miles in rain on the bitumen against uh, semi-trailers at two o'clock in the morning in Melbourne there were 240,000 people to greet him as he came in with 12 motorcycle policemen in front of him so he could sniff the fumes as he waved to people he became the greatest athlete in the history of the world what is this mountain you want what is this mountain you want oh the they went into the hospital to see some of the Olympic athletes where they hid under the sheets the medical profession said, well, it must be his diet. And they found that he ran the whole race with canned peaches and boiled potatoes. They tested his arteries. They were like a child. They said, well, it must be his training program. And they found that he milked cows night and morning and grew potatoes on the side. And he had a dog. And the dog went out every morning and every night and barked and brought in the cows. But his dog died. So he put on some gumboots and he ran up and down the hills barking like a dog night and morning and developed lungs like footballs. And then they went to the Olympic athletes again. They said, well, how can you be a man that doesn't stop? The greatest athlete in the history of the world, 500 miles nonstop. Not long after that, he decided to run around Australia, but the backup team collapsed and couldn't go any further. But what about you? You know, Rollo May, the great philosopher, spoke about the cowardice of conformity. The Bible says to us, whatever you do, whatever you do, whatever you do, don't conform. You've got to transform. How? By the renewing of your brain. Now, the hardest job I've had over the last 50 years is to get Christians to spend money on their brains. Psychologists and behavioural scientists tell me I have a very unusual mind because I can read five books at a time, I can uh, write a best-selling book in 14 hours or longhand without any corrections, without any reference material. And they say, you've got a very unusual mind, you've never been through a school. And I said to my wife, if anything happens to this brain and their perfected brain implants, get me a Christian brain. She said, why? I said, because it's never been used. But what do we do? We conform. My Bible says, wide is the way to lead to distraction, narrow is the way to lead to life. So what are you after? Just a better job? Or are you prepared to transfer your life for a cause? Because finally, 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 when you do expire, whatever you've done in your lifetime, that is what you've transferred your life for, and the cost of a big dream or a small dream 
that's still going to cost you your life. You know, my hero, Winston Churchill, they went to his wife after Churchill died and they said, what attracted you to Winston? You, you were a beautiful woman. You could have had any man you wanted. She said, yes, I had many suitors. Well, what attracted you to Winston? He smoked those awful cigars. He drank a bit too much. She said, oh, it was fairly easy, really. All the men wanted to learn about history. Winston wanted to create it. They went to Billy Graham's wife, Ruth, one time, and they said, what attracted you to Billy? She said, it was easy. He just wanted to be a giant for God. And the word of Ezekiel calling out to us today as never before, I sought for a man among them who would make a wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land that I should not destroy it, but I found none. The gap, ladies and gentlemen, today in Christendom, right throughout the world, is an economic gap, and we've got people who want to go to the mission fields. We've got people who want to teach Bible. We've got people who want to work in hospitals. We, we haven't got anyone that wants to pay the bills. It's an economic gap. I've said to my wife when we get home, I'm a stonemason. I'll dig up some more stone, I'll build a big wall, and I'll put a gap in it. I'll have the words of Ezekiel there. I sought for a man among them who would make a wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land that I should not destroy it. But I didn't find anyone. Well, the gap is the place of power. The gap is the place where you hear the sobs of broken hearts. The gap is the place of heroism. And the biggest gap in Christendom today is an economic gap. And we want you to come tomorrow night and Tuesday night. I'll get two people out of the audience, two men and two women. I'll show them how to set their life goals from a biblical perspective and hit it on target. They'll never be the same again. They may be better, they may be worse, but they're not going to be the same again. <laughs> you know, at a time, I, I nudged the pastor and I, I, I said I'd like to do something different. But I want to share a testimony with you. You know, I used to weep alongside my bed. I used to hit my head. I couldn't get anything to stay in there. Today we have the only full reserve bullion bank in the entire world. We print currency. We're the largest supplier of business material to Christians in the world. We have no debts, no overdrafts, no leases, no rentals in the entire world. But what about you? This dream that you have, have you traded your life for it? Do you really believe it? You see, when you get my age, and I don't want to be indelicate, but I'm gone on Wednesday. But you see, when you get my age, you get up and go to the bathroom more often than night. It's just a fundamental fact. I love it. I come back and dream again. I've rescued more people than Rambo. <laughs> I'm dreaming every night. My wife's holding my legs down. I say, don't wake me up. I'm having the time of life. What about you? Do you dream about it? This thing that God has put inside your heart, you know there's something there that's trying to get out, but you keep pushing it back because you're full of fear instead of full of faith. Or you're still waiting for something to happen. This dream that you have, you're really possessed by it. You feel you're in the right place at the right time. How do you know if you have the qualities to get that dream? Well, if you are repulsed by frivolous rewards or empty praise, any pat on the back do you? or you're looking for something bigger. Things started to happen in my life. I was able to do a few things that were unusual in the world. But I learned something about striving to do something for God. You've got to have the willingness to bear pain. Years ago, I was asked to go and do a debate on television with a, an atheist who was going to tear me to pieces because I was rich and a Christian. And the makeup got put on and they were walking me towards the studio and the audience were clapping. You could hear them announcing me coming and uh, 
just as I walked through the curtains, the stage manager took my arm. He said, now listen. He said, there's a step there. I'll hold your arm. But there's four people debating with you now, not one. Immediately I knew they were in trouble. <laughs> and the first question they said, Mr. Daniels, we hear that you only own one pair of dress shoes. I said, that's right. They said, why do you only have one pair of shoes? I said, well, that's quite obvious. I only got one pair of feet. <laughs> they said, but you drive a Rolls Royce. I said, but I've only got one of them. They said, could you give us a definition of your success? I said, yes. The willingness to bear pain, not to be a pain. And you've got to step into the pain arena if you're going to win. You cannot be an Olympic athlete if you're going to stay in the comfort zone. It was a fairly easy debate, really. I don't think they'd ever studied Shakespeare in Othello, where it says, oh, God, that made should use his mouth as an enemy to his brain. Can you maintain it? How do you know if you have leadership qualities? Can you maintain the momentum? You've got to get involved. Get involved in giving. Luke 638, given it will be given unto you. You've got to have a long-term impact. You see... You must courageously oppose wrong. I remember one time when I fought pornography, the first time for 200 years in the British Empire, I stopped from using women and pornographic objects. But if you're going to win, you better resist the comments and direction of the crowd. The crowd is always wrong. The minority that's right, the majority may confirm what is right, but they never initiate what is right. And remember that ruthless logic is a sign of a limited mind. But this dream that you have, it's in there, it's bothering you. You know that it's there. You know you're born for something different. How can you guarantee it's coming? I've got to illustrate this by telling you a little story. I made comment that Winston Churchill was one of my heroes. I've read every book that's ever been written about him. I've read every book that he's written. I have his home movies. I have everything I've ever been able to find about him, but I couldn't find out one thing. But I, I did find out a couple of instances when he was 11 years of age. He'd come out of religious training and was running around in the woods with a boy called Evans. They sat down for a while. They scratched the dirt and a couple of worms came up. And the other boy said, you know, Winnie, I believe in the sight of God. We're all worms. And Winston turned around to Evans and said, well, that might be all right for you, but I'm a glowworm. And you ask the question, what makes a great great? And I studied this man, and one day I found a letter he wrote to his mother while he was fighting a war in India, and this will answer the question. And this is what he said. Dear mother, he said, we were out on military exercise today on horseback, and we were ambushed by the enemy. Rather than flee like my comrades, I rode straight into the face of the enemy. I withdrew my revolver. I dispatched two of the enemy immediately. I spun my pony around. I dispatched two more. I was cool then as I am now writing this letter to you. Nary a bullet touched my pony, my tunic or my person. I believe I was preserved for higher things. And there are people here tonight that God has preserved for higher things. And you're playing the fool. You know that you, you've got something bigger to do. You've been divorced. You've been bankrupt. You've been ill. You've had all manner of things happen to you. But God has preserved you for higher things. And we're going to get the job done over the next 48 hours. I remember in my own life, at 45 years of age, the newspapers come in with something that I'd done. And I went out in the back garden and sulked. And I said, Lord, this is not the big deal. 
If this is a big deal, I looked up above my head and there was a huge eucalypt branch hanging from a tree that had been there for 150 years. I said, you might just as well drop that branch on me, Lord, because I measure the water content at Way 3 Tunnel to squash me just like that. If this is a big deal, just let's get it over and done with and let me get to heaven. And, of course, nothing happened. It was a sunny day. There was no wind. I walked away. Down it came. It crushed the chair that I'd been sitting in. It crashed the concrete under the chair that I'd been sitting in. It put an iron fence two feet in the hard-packed earth, and I reset my priorities. And there's some people here that need to reset their priorities. You are the carrier of dreams. You are the empire builders of tomorrow. You are God's rescue squad. The world thinks that you're finished, but they haven't touched the American spirit. They don't understand that once you ignite that, there's nothing in the world that will stop you. Once we can get that spirit ignited once again, you might owe more than all the money in the world, but you can fight back. You see, I look at this man called Caleb, and he knew what he wanted, he expected to get it. He had a good self-image. He said, I'm as strong as 85 as I was at 40. They said, there are giants there. They said, that's good. That means they're big. They're too big to miss. He was on the edge of the promised land. He was motivated. You see, motivation comes with a sense of the future. What is this mountain you want? You know, faith turns weaknesses into strength because it allows for the total perspective. Faith waits and communes with God to continue faithful to the challenge, to continue the word of God, you know, by accepting his permanent, by accepting his passion for the lost. Faith turns spiritual pygmies into giants. And I think of Caleb, he wholly followed the Lord my God. You know, probably one of the greatest business leaders in America who was a Christian was Henry Latourneau. He built big earth moving equipment. He said, there's no big jobs, just small machines. And he had a passion for the lost. He was a big gruff man with a soft voice. One day he was in his drawing room doing some drawing and the creditors came and he was, they were trying to bankrupt him. He got a knock on the door and with his grump voice he said, come in. His attorney came in, he said, yes, what do you want? He said, well, it's the creditors are waiting in the parlour. They want their money. <laughs> he said, they'll have to wait a while. I'll still get it. He said, well, they've asked me to talk to you. He said, well, what? He said, they've asked me to persuade you to give everything up and they'll let you keep your house. But you've got to give them everything. <laughs> he said, what did you tell them? He said, I told them I would persuade you to do that. He said, you're fired. He said, why am I fired? He said, because you know nothing. All of my life, young man, I've said... I'm in partnership with God. You ever heard of God going broke? And he bounced back and gave away another 300 million. What is this mountain you want? In 1977, with my young family, America was being laughed at because of the Nixon scandal. I remembered only too well that you saved our nation during the 40s. We flew over here and we thanked America. I've been back over 150 times trying to help, particularly in the Christian church. We've created a lot of millionaires. And at that time, I was asked on television to make some comments, and I wrote a little poem, and I want to end with this tonight. Now, I can't help you if you don't come to these meetings. 
I don't have to persuade you to come. I'm not getting any money for it. I'm here to help you, but I, I've very rarely, I think only four times I've been back to a church twice, and this is one of them. But we can change. And I want to close with this poem that I wrote back in 1977. And it says these words, Oh, America, we love you as we see your flag unfurl. Your promises of justice to a cruel and a hostile world. You arrive at every conflict with a strong but gentle heart, always ready to help others, ever first to make the start. Your blessings to the world of enterprise and gifts produce a comradeship that's rare, that encourages and lifts. There are a few who want you down and never more to rise, but let them know in definite terms, be ready for surprise. You are the greatest nation on the earth, a heritage of faith, a land of free and homes of brave who will never quake. So take on notice all the earth, in God we trust for sure. Never take our gifts for granted or venture hostile to this shore. United in diversity with cultures and with skin, your enterprise is always strong with a firm will to win. In God you trust to guide you as you continue on your way. America, we love you. What else is there to say? God bless America. I know that there are some of you in here and your heart is stirred tonight. And yes, Dr. Daniels was stirring us up, but I'm talking about the Holy Spirit stirring you. Because down inside, you know that there's a calling, a divine plan that is yet unrealized. And the enemy has attacked your mind to discourage you and to tell you, well, I made too many mistakes. It's been so long now. Well, look at my financial situation. Look at my age. And yet the Lord is speaking tonight and saying, but you have me. And if God is for us, who can be against us? Would you bow your heads with me? And I'm going to ask if you would pray to God right now. Open your heart to receive. The plan of God for your life is not just about you. Your life was designed to impact other people. And God's purpose for you is far bigger than any of your family realizes. Or any of those friends or people that look at you and see your own limitations. But what they don't see is the God behind you. His strength, His grace, His favor. The doors that He opens. And tonight the Lord is speaking to your heart and saying, you know I have called you to something higher than what's happening now. Believe me. Receive my help. Begin to run again. Begin to dream again. Would you pray right now before the Lord? Lord, I receive your word tonight. Lord, I receive this encouragement tonight. I receive the restoration of my calling, my purpose.
I receive it. Strengthen me by your spirit. For it is God who works in us both to will and to do for his purpose. Both to want to do it and to do it, to fulfill it for his good purpose. Lord, I pray in Jesus' name that all discouragement would drain away and courage would come to our hearts. Strength, confidence that says no weapon formed against me shall prosper. No man shall be able to stand before me all the days of my life as God was with Moses, so he will be with me. He will not leave me nor forsake me. Lord, I thank you for reigniting dreams, callings, visions, purposes in the hearts of your people. We thank you that all of our sins and mistakes of the past are forgiven and cleansed by the blood of Jesus. We receive a fresh start tonight. A clean slate. And Lord, as your word says, we run this race with patience, endurance, and with joy in our hearts. If this is speaking to you tonight, with your head still bowed, would you slip a hand up to the Lord and say, Lord, I receive a renewed vision tonight. I receive a renewed calling tonight. And by your strength and power, I will finish my race. I will keep the faith. In the name of Jesus, we pray. And everybody said, amen. Let's clap our hands in agreement on that, can we? Amen. No telling what is in this room right now that will be world changing other people may look at you and me and not see very much but God looks at us and said he or she is a world changer and it ain't over till it's over I'm not going to talk about the lady that people talk about it ain't over till it's over and in the kingdom, we don't play nine inning games. We play till we win. <laughs> and so I want you to take courage tonight because the Lord brought us here. He's speaking to us. All of you people who are business leaders, business owners, take heart because the Lord is saying that He wants to do something in your business beyond the economics of our world. Some of you are are not in business yet. But your heart is stirred as we talk about starting a business, owning a business, running a business, maybe even for some of you, multiple businesses. And your mind says, oh, but what if I fail? But look at the Bible. Oh, what if you succeed? Look what you can do for the kingdom. Look what you can do for other people, for your family. I would never recommend for somebody to start a business who wasn't called to. But everyone called to, I highly recommend. Do it in faith.
and allow the Holy Spirit to make you the success for the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen.